is the J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie lovers. My name is Andreas. I am the creator and one of the head writers over at Films Fatale. I love international and art house cinema, but a little bit of everything in between. Who else do I have with me on the pod? I'm Rachel, and I also write for Films Fatale. I love learning about lost films, international cinema, and the golden age. So, yeah, we may be talking about some of that tonight. James here. Content creator, I produce and release music under the Alias Boutique Paul, one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, which after a way too long hiatus finally returned last week. And another episode's coming out tomorrow. So yeah, if you want to listen to more of me, check that out. So it was my pick for this episode, and I decided to come up with something simple. So throughout history, there are countless films that had to change their ending before they got released for whatever reason. Maybe, you know, producers liked the full script but needed the ending changed, or maybe they needed to change the ending to get a certain rating, or maybe they just thought that the ending might not work with a general audience. So the first half, we're going to talk about films that had their ending changed before release, and then the second half are endings that we think should have been changed. That's interesting, because that could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your perspective. So I'll be interested to see what kind of discussion we get out of this. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, who wants to endure an entire journey if the ending is no good? Or, um, you know, it's also interesting to see what these changed endings that we're going to be discussing are. Would we have preferred them? Were they changed for the better? Um, Yeah, I feel like... A lot of this is going to be subjective, but at the end, you know, at the same time, all's well that ends well. So I feel like uh, these are some very important discussions to be having when it comes to the legacy of some of these films. Yeah. Um, so who wants to go first? I mean, I can go since uh, I came up with the topic. Okay. So I decided to go with Sam Raimi's cult classic, Army of Darkness. Ooh, okay. Which, for fans of Raimi, you know, is the classic finale to the trilogy that is the evil dead trilogy and that actually had its original ending axed because the studio didn't think that would it would get a very well reception so if you've seen the movie you know the premise is like he goes back in time and then ends up yeah it ends up in shenanigans involving like i forgot what was it i think it was like the 1300s or something like that Mm -hmm. somewhere way back when And, you know, so and and then he actually ends up fighting an undead army by the end of it. And he actually has a way back by way of this potion. And also he has a catchphrase he has to say, which is uh, um, Klaatu Verata Niktu, which for cinephiles, you know, that comes from the day the earth stood still. And so he takes the potion, he's supposed to take five drops, and then at the end, it kind of cuts to him working at a department store, and he's kind of doing some demonstration about this gun, and then, you know, something just seems not right, and then out of nowhere, a dead-eyed appears, he, you know, shoots it, kills it, and then, you know, that's it, it's just being cool Bruce Campbell. But the original ending, which they actually did shoot, and included in, like, you know, special edition, like, you know, bonus features... He there's something that distracts him. He kind of hears a noise that distracts him, and he accidentally takes one drop more. And he sent because he was. It's supposed to be um, each drop is a hundred years. He gets sent a hundred years further and wakes up in a dystopian future and is trapped. 
So the studio thought that was a bit too bleak, and so they axed it. But I personally think that would have been interesting because it kind of could have led to another film of him trying to go back. But I mean, I can understand why the studio wanted to, you know, get rid of it because I don't, I don't think a general audience would really appreciate that. Yeah, um, I haven't seen the film, so uh, I don't know what effect it could have had, but I totally get where they were coming from on it. I feel like uh, Sam Raimi and the whole Evil Dead story, um, there's such a weird, interesting tale, which could almost be its own film when it comes to his involvement with the studio and his relationship, you know, whether it's being able to, do, to go around and tell the same story again with uh, Evil Dead 2. Uh, basically, it's the Evil Dead, but done better, <laughs> pretty much. He was he was actually forced to do that. Exactly, exactly. Because the but, second the second movie was supposed to be him being sent back in time. Exactly, but now it's a trilogy because he had to do this one. So, uh, there again, such an interesting relationship he had with the studio. So I guess it didn't end there. I guess Army of Darkness was also uh, also had uh, studio's hands within it. Yeah, it's really weird because so the reason the second one seems kind of like a a requel because they for some reason with who the the distributor of the original film, they couldn't get the rights to use footage from that film, which is why he changed it up and he's alone with his girlfriend in the woods as opposed to like his girlfriend and his friends like in the first film. And it was the same with Army of Darkness, they didn't have the rights to use footage from two, and but on the special edition, they have the original intro to the Army of Darkness where they do include footage from the second one. So it's just such a weird thing when it came to rights and what he was able to use. So that kind of dictated how he approached making the follow-up films. Yeah. I mean, as we all know, <laughs> Sam Raimi is no stranger to you know studio involvement, whether you're looking at this or Spider-Man or... Um, I guess even the latest Doctor Strange film. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, for better or for worse, his entire filmography almost seems like a big cautionary tale when it comes to somebody who likes to make horror flicks and what happens when that's brought to a big, large scale. How much of this is his say? How much isn't? Um, again, for better or for worse. Um, you know, the end result for me of our, you know, Army of Darkness is a fun film, but it's, I don't like it quite as much as the other two Evil Dead films, but it, it is for people who love like just fun, mindless cinema. It, it's definitely up your alley, but uh, perhaps maybe that's my problem with it is all of these revelations. Well, um, I, I'd like to go next because I feel like it could kind of go hand in hand with yours. Um, the film I'm going to talk about, instead of it being too dark and I had to dial it back, it was kind of the opposite. Um, they wanted to make it even darker, which is hilarious. Um, I'm going to talk about my favorite screenplay of all time. That's Chinatown. It's directed by Roman Polanski and written by Robert Towns. So this is very interesting. First off, before I continue, have either of you seen this? Uh, yes, yes. Yes, I, I love Chinatown. Great. Movie. Okay, fantastic. So, for the listeners at home, I'm going to warn you right now, maybe skip five minutes ahead or so. If you haven't seen Chinatown, major spoilers. And this movie is the kind where you really don't want to get spoiled. At some, it doesn't matter as much, but this, yeah. This this absolutely must not be spoiled. So uh, starting from now, skip five minutes ahead. I'm going to try and be brief. So the original ending 
in Chinatown, as we all know, this is about uh, our favorite detective, Giddis, trying to look into the whole drought scenario um, and looking into the, uh, you know, into the death of, uh, of a major player in town. Meanwhile, he's being uh, toyed around with with uh, the uh, with the deceased's ex or the deceased wife, uh, Evelyn Mulray. And uh, at the end of the film, we get this big revelation. Um, I don't want to go too deeply into it, but basically it's revealed that her father is behind everything. His name was Noah Cross. And the original ending that Town had, believe it or not, you know, if neither of you know this, believe it or not, the original ending was Giddis was going to save the day. Cross, I think, was going to get killed. Uh, Evelyn Mulray and her daughter get saved the day is saved which knowing what we know about chinatown is ridiculous boring 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 it's absolutely boring oh yeah that would have been awful <laughs> considering that i consider this the greatest screenplay of all time that's a terrible ending and not really in line with new hollywood However, that's where Roman Polanski comes into play. He basically said, no, I'm not having this ending. This needs to be darker. Otherwise, what's the whole point of the neo-noir movement? What's the whole point of the new Hollywood movement? What are we really saying with this? Are we adhering to the cookie-cutter mold of old, or are we doing something new? And they had such a disagreement that Robert Town actually, I believe, left the project around the end of the shoot and... I think almost pretty much wanted nothing to do with it. Ultimately, he went on to win uh, an Academy Award for a screenplay, so he was still credited, still beloved. But the ending as we know it now, just to provide some context, um, things don't go good as his way. He winds up at Chinatown again, where everything goes back exactly as it did before, uh, against his best wishes, and he destroyed a life that he was trying to save. Uh, Evelyn Mulray gets killed in the line of fire. Uh, Noah Cross uh, winds up stealing his granddaughter. We have no idea where they're going to go, what's going to happen. And he was trying to be the hero, and he destroyed everything. So that bleak ending is what most people, including... You know, especially because of the famous line, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. That's what we remember, and rightfully so. Having said that, um, obviously it sounds like we prefer the original ending. But how would this film have a legacy if this was the, if the original ending was what we got? It would be just another pot boiler, basically. Right? I feel like it would destroy a near-perfect film. Well, because you, you got to think about it. When he takes his granddaughter, when you get the certain revelation that it's also his daughter, that that makes it even, you know, that kind of hits even harder because it's like, whoa, this situation's already disturbing. But the fact that the bad guy wins in the scenario and all that work he was trying to do just falls apart. Yeah, a, a good ending wouldn't have worked. It's just some because it, it, I, I think it's one of those, it's reflective of something that would actually happen. Like this is that's a more realistic scenario in the situation. It's not like oh he saves the day. It's like okay then it's just everything leading up to that just was pointless. Yeah, but luckily that is not the case. And again, to keep it brief so we don't spoil, um, I'm gonna wrap up the China talk down or sorry the China talk talk here. Um, but yeah, considering it's in my top five favorite films ever, my top film of the '70s, top screenplay of all time, it's actually baffling that it almost could have been 
anything but. So uh, I once you gave this topic, I had to use this film as my example. Rachel, what about you, though? Well, mine is a musical, and it's been made a couple of times, but I'm talking about the 1986, I believe, version of this movie. Have either of you seen Little Shop of Horrors? Yes. Yes. I have not. So there's two versions. There's one that's a cult uh, horror movie from 1960, starring... um, it's made by Roger Corbin, and I can't remember the lead actors, but there was a very young Jack Nicholson in it about, for about three seconds. Um, it was completely low budget, very, very dark take on the monster movie. It's got the sort of classic monster movie plot, um, and it's this carnivorous plant and a bunch of ordinary people who get caught up in, in the sort of conspiracy to hide it. And then the plant... Um, takes over at the end in the 1960 movie. This also translated into the Broadway musical, which is basically the same story, but with doo-wop music. It is really fun, really campy, and overall, it doesn't lean as hard into the black comedy, or rather it does, but it has a much shinier veneer on top. So then eventually they decide to make this into a movie in 1986, the Broadway version. Rick Moranis and Steve Martin, Ellen Green... Um, and so you've got the very dark subject matter, and then you've got the really poppy, fun soundtrack together. So originally, the movie was going to end the same way both the Broadway musical and the cult hit did, and it was um, it was going to be the plant taking over the world and um, murdering everybody, including all the main characters, and just a depressing ending. Test audiences absolutely hated it. They just felt it didn't fit. And it just was too bleak for the sort of style that this movie was going for. So instead, what you get is the textbook happy ending, which fits with the sort of 50s vibe of it. But then there's just a tiny little hint that maybe their troubles aren't over yet. Just a small one right before the end credits. And to be honest, I think the test audience might have been right. I think this was the way to go. Oh, yeah. Uh, I haven't watched Little Shop of Horrors in a really long time. Um, I do know that it's a cult favorite. Um, So the fact that they were, it sounds like they were listening to the audience in this case. Yes, it wasn't studio meddling, really. It was more, this doesn't play like we thought it did, so we're going to change it around. I think that the original ending perfectly suits the, um, the 60s version, because it's really leaning into this darker take on the world. But with a poppy Broadway musical, yeah, it really doesn't fit. So I think they probably did the right thing with allowing just that little hint that things might still go wrong and keeping the sort of happiness at the same time. Plus, who could keep doing mean things to Ellen Green after everything she went through in that movie? I mean, it makes sense that at the end of the day, they listen to the audience because, you know, some some films, I don't really know if that's the best way to go. But it's something, in the case of a film like this one, Little Shop of Horrors, where the critical analysis is whatever it is, but it's a beloved fan favorite. It's something that has a cult status amongst viewers. I feel like that was the way to go, because had they not listened, would this have done as well? Probably not. I feel like... um, you know, in this particular case, listening to the masses was the way to go. And still to this day, I uh, hear people saying, uh, feed me Seymour. So, I mean, yes. people still love it. And a fun fact, I'm going to work into this. When I was young, I used to compete in musical theater competitions. And one year I did the song as Audrey too. 
I had a giant oh, plant okay. costume and everything. I was maybe That's 13 amazing. or so. That is probably the most Rachel thing I've ever heard. Musical competitions? I, I will try to find the pictures somewhere. I think my mother has them. And yeah, I, I had, the arms were tentacles and I had this little basket uh, suspended from my shoulders. It was pretty rad. But anyway, yeah, Little Shop of Horrors. I definitely think the sort of cute ending with the more bleak undertones was the way to go. I still have yet to see Little Shop of Horrors. I've seen like clips I think you'd enjoy it. It, It's references. Steve Martin is worth it. Fun fact about the original, the nineteen sixty one. I haven't seen it, but the main thing I know about it, it was shot in two days. Yes, and it is frequently found in bargain DVD bins because it was public domain very fast. Two days. Wow. Yep, two days. I there's a couple different stories. Um, One supposedly that they wanted to do it because it was right in between a date where they were supposed to like. They were changing business practices, and uh, there was going to be a new agreement to where I think actors were going to get part, like actually start getting royalties from films themselves. And supposedly he wanted to like beat that, but I don't. I, I think it might have also been him like trying to do it in that time for a specific reason, like someone like challenged him to do it or something like that. There's a couple different versions of the story, but yeah, apparently he had two camera crews working simultaneously, so they didn't have to um, have to do multiple ta- multiple angle takes. So it takes care of it right all at once. And apparently that's why it's like, if it looks strange the way the editing is, is because they did it that way. But yeah, two days for the entire movie. Well, uh, from a Rachel, such a Rachel thing that to a very James thing, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the quick, uh, the quick, exactly. Uh, speaking of James things, uh, it's now the second half of the episode. So remind us what we're doing again for the second half. We're talking about endings that should have been changed. Ah, uh, Yes. Okay, shall we go in the same order? Sounds good to me. Okay. So, I'm, I am I would have liked a different ending too, and I hope some people don't like Uh-oh. come for me for this. American History X. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I, okay, if people are, aren't going to come for you, they're going to come for me. As somebody who used to love that film as a teenager, I find it quite grossly overrated now as an adult. Uh, so, I don't have a problem with this. Uh, <laughs> Rachel, have you seen it? I haven't. So if you guys could explain what the original ending was, that that might help. Take it away, James. Okay, so Edward Norton plays a white supremacist. And the whole thing is he ends up getting sent to prison for curb stomping a black man and killing him. And the movie is him in prison, and he's got to kind of confront his racism. And he kind of he kind of forms a bond with a black inmate. And then, uh, you know, something traumatic happens. I think he ends up getting assaulted in the showers or something like that. And then the person he turns to is this person. And it kind of changes his perspective. And he starts to realize, like, he's wrong. But uh, I mean, the opening scene, it's actually about... Um, but the ending is concerning his little brother. His little brother who kind of, like, idolizes him. In the beginning, he walks in the bathroom. And uh, there's three black kids. And this is at school. They're bullying a fellow white student and uh, he kind of stands up for them. And what he does is he blows smoke in like the leader's face. And then at the end of the movie, he they're out to eat or something like he goes in the bathroom and that student is waiting for him with, with a gun and shoots him. And then Edward Norris character like finds him in the bathroom and it's just, you know, obviously traumatic. But my main issue with it is the consequences of his actions aren't the results of racism. It's literally just him challenging somebody and challenging the perceived authority they have over like people who are smaller than them. 
And I also think it's like, because you kind of found out Edward Norton's character, it's the result, his racism comes a result of, of his dad's death, which was at the hand, I forgot, was his dad was a police officer, right, Andreas? Um, I, or something like that, because there was like this, uh, I think it was like a police officer, because part of Edward Norton's uh, hatred was basically like, you know, oh, my dad didn't get respect in the neighborhood. Like, the, 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 he was something, he was an authority figure of some sort. Yeah, and I, th- I think it was, I think it was his death was, was at the hands of of a black person. And then it just kind of like launched him this racist kind of, you know, tirade. And just, and that's when he just becomes involved in white supremacy, like full on. But with this ending, it doesn't make sense. Cause it's like, okay, so something similar happens. Is this supposed to, how is he supposed to handle that? Because it's kind of the root of his issue to begin with. But also it's like, do we need to constantly double and triple dip into like trauma for characters? I think it could have been resolved to where it's like his brother learns a lesson and they could have like resolved what happened earlier instead of like, Oh, he's got consequences. But like I said, his, his death wasn't a result of his own racism. It was, it's kind of like, I guess they kind of framed it to make you perceive that, but it just doesn't really connect with the story by the end. So that's why I kind of would rather have it changed to something more. This is something that could have probably used a happy ending because it just kind of falls apart because it doesn't actually align with the theme it's just you're 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 playing this association game where it's like oh he's confronting the the people that he supposedly hates and then you know he he gets punished for it but it's it's not even framed in the way that the story goes in general so i just don't understand how that it just seems like a major oversight when they were making it I would have changed it in a slightly different way. I don't know if I would have opted for the happy ending because such a subject matter doesn't necessarily uh, have happy endings. Right, maybe not happy, but... I feel like had he still died, um, perhaps more time after the fact, maybe like a discussion after the fact, like what are we... How are we seeing Edward Norton, who's reformed, now having to deal with something like this? Um what where where do his thoughts go like what is he thinking i feel like we were posed this type of thing where we're supposed to ascertain ourselves but i feel like the film itself is quick to not answer what it's posing and not in a good way in a bit of a yeah in a bit of a we're going to trivialize such a very damning sequence as the the climax, you know, the coup de grace of the ending of the film instead of something that could have been a lot more poignant. So and it unraveled um, everything it was trying to work for. Yeah, because it, it poses it in such a way it's it doesn't really resolve in the way that I think the filmmakers had in mind. I do agree with that. Well, um, <laughs> I guess if you've never seen American History X, maybe you don't need to now. Uh, but uh, the only thing I would say is best performance by Edward Norton. Outside of that, it's so-so. Anyway. Um, I feel like if you tune into an episode about Enix and you get spoiled, that's kind of your own fault. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's especially that's with a movie true. as old as that one. That's very true. Um, speaking of older films, uh, so... Last year, before I started getting into my TV research, the initial idea I had was once I was done going through every decade, I wanted to start ranking every film uh, of my favorite filmmakers. So playing catch up with some of the films that I hadn't seen. And I stumbled upon this film when I was doing the works of Martin Scorsese. So the film I'm electing today is The Color of Money. Have either of you seen it? No. 
I don't think so. So the color of money, I'll never forget this. I was nearing the last 20 minutes of it, and I was thinking, this film is so criminally underrated, it's not even funny. So the premise of the film is that it is, uh, you know, it stars a young Tom Cruise, and it also has uh, Paul Newman. Now, Paul Newman Did is reprising a role. That? He did, actually. He yes. won Best Actor for this. And he was reprising a role that stemmed from a previous film called The Hustler, which was based on a book and is about a pool hustler, you know, somebody who's really good at, at uh, you know, playing eight ball, nine ball, whatever it may be, and they hustle people out of money. So in The Color of Money, it's, uh, it's a follow-up film. And, uh, yeah, Paul Newman is back, except this time he's like, you know, the older player, you know, the, the veteran of yesteryear, and he's going up against Tom Cruise, who's also a bit of a hotshot. And they play uh, kind of like a mentor-mentee, relationship but at the same time also rivals like they have like a bit of an on again off again type of partnership um i if i haven't seen this in a while but if i recall tom cruise's character is a bit of a hothead with an ego that paul newman's character is kind of like the veteran but he's starting to show signs of weakness um and the film's like really well edited really dynamic really interesting until we get to the ending. Now, the ending has this big setup for what looks like a face-off, a final face-off between these two. You know, the teacher, the student, the new master, the old master, however you want to look at it. And the way that the film resolves is basically a realization that they're going to wind up in pool halls for the rest of their lives, bumping into one another facing each other this isn't the last time they're gonna face and that's how it ends and i'll never forget feeling so so defeated like just so underwhelmed by what is a rare misstep by scorsese and company in any of his films and that automatically plummeted the film to being still a really good one but easily one of the worst in scorsese filmography like what a what a deflated type of ending for such a dynamic, interesting film. What I would have done instead was had some sort of ending, whether Cruz won or, or Newman won, doesn't matter, some sort of a definitive statement. What do we think here? Are we going with the ways of old or are we going with the new generation? Something distinctive. I felt like it was a bit of a, a lazy kind of cowardly way to wrap up a film when it comes to something like this. It's not up to the audience to decide. I mean, we can, but at the same time, I feel like in a film like this, it should have taken a side. I'm sorry. I feel like it was just a lazy way to go. It certainly sounds like it was kind of anticlimactic. Absolutely. It absolutely was, because the way that it shot, the acting, everything is just so high stakes, in your face, really exciting. And then it kind of is just like... We're going to keep going and see what happens. See you down the road. Credits. Like, ridiculous. I'm sorry. It's just really silly. (laughs) Uh, It's like that sometimes. Maybe he was setting up for a threequel. Yeah, I mean, who knows? 
Anyway, now that we've ruined that film, uh, Rachel, what film ending would you like to change? Well, mine's actually two movies, but I take greater issue with the later version of this one instead of the first version. And that is The Parent Trap. Uh, are either of you familiar with this uh, beloved children's classic? I, I've i seen the remake. I haven't seen the original. Are we? Which version are we talking about? Well, you just need to know the basic plot. Yeah, well, I, I, I have seen both. So this started out, if you're one of the five people on Earth who has not seen The Parent Trap, um, it was originally made in the 1960s with Haley Mills playing twins, so two different characters, and they did wonky split-screen technology that was pretty revolutionary for the time. And um, she plays a set of twins who are maybe like 10 to 12 years old, and they've never met, and... That's because their parents had a divorce, and part of the agreement was that they would live in, I think in the first movie, it's separate parts of the United States, and then in the second one, it's America and England. And they never contact each other, they never contact their other children, and the twins do not know the other one exists. So they meet by chance at the summer camp, and they go through a, hey, you look just like me moment. And then once they figure out what's up, they decide they're going to scheme to get their parents back together, which, of course, because it's twins, includes switching places. So this was made by Disney originally, I believe. Um, And it was the 60s one um, and the 90s one have pretty much the same plot. There's a new love interest for the dad on the horizon. There's a bunch of shenanigans going on. And then finally, the mom and the dad realize that they love each other, they get back together, and the girls are junior bridesmaids at this second wedding. Guys, this is stupid as hell, I'm sorry. So, the 60s one I can kind of understand, because divorce was treated very differently back then, and they had to have their happy ending at all costs. So, yeah, I can understand why they went with this bizarre plot. I think the sin is from the 90s one, because by the time of the 90s, many, many households had divorce, and um, it was a much larger, much more accepted within society. And I think that they should have had an ending kind of similar to Mrs. Doubtfire, which had come out about five years earlier. And I think they could have had it in a way where the girls met and maybe they brought their parents back together and it was decided that even though the parents didn't work, um, the girls could go on seeing each other and they could have some contact and you could drive home. Sometimes a couple isn't meant to be together, but that doesn't mean you can't cooperate on certain things. I think that a film like Mrs. Doubtfire handled that really well, but in The Parent Trap, they didn't change a thing and so it's this weird, archaic plotline. And... What a damaging message to send to a society where so many kids have divorced parents, wouldn't you agree? It's just, there's no regard for the passage of time whatsoever, and I think the 1990s film should have had a more ambiguous ending instead of this this Disney fairy tale going on. I, I just think it was a serious misstep where there could have been a good lesson. I also feel like Disney films in the 90s like the live action ones, especially, I mean, Disney in general is like this, but especially the live action films in the 90s, they almost feel like they were trying to go back to the ways of old, like the uh, the Hayes Code and like these very specific things. And that's why there's a lot of notoriety around these films, you know, considering that The Parent Trap is considered one of the, one of the better results 
of this era. Um, you're looking at some really awful stuff. And uh, a lot of it comes from not necessarily wanting to tell stories, but uh, wanting to instill these particular values of the ways of old, whilst in some cases reviving tales of old as well. So in this case, you know, you've got this film that's already done before and now it's being retold again, but through a very dated lens. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, even the premise itself doesn't really hold up because who the heck would approve that kind of custody arrangement? <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a lot of complications with that being like them separated internationally, but also I found it kind of strange that, you know, one twin from Europe is getting sent to an American summer camp. Yeah, that I mean, that's not uncommon at the very high end summer camps. Like people will come internationally, and and the staff will be international too. They'll be like young people from Europe who want to earn college money or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like in a weird way, especially because Lindsay Lohan is not a twin, mm-hmm. but it almost felt like this film was like. Disney's answer to like the Olsen twins at the time. So many people think make, the like... Olsen twins were the kids in that movie. <laughs> but <laughs> no. no, it was a very young Lindsay Lohan. I think this was her big break. It was. And uh, she plays uh, both sets of twins. So they had to do some manipulation there, you know, in, in the in the post-production department. But yeah, I mean, um, it almost felt like their answer where it's like, we're going to not get twins. We're just going to get one, well, uh, one child playing twins. But I mean, to to her credit, outside of, a very obvious accent. Um, I feel like she does a pretty good job. She does. They considering seem like different age. people. Yeah, absolutely. But that, that, that's the thing. It still feels like a lot about this film, as beloved as it might be, was conceived for wrong reasons. You know, trying to answer to the Olsen twins, trying to uphold this 90s live-action Disney rhetoric, which felt very dated and not very um, not very well worked on at all. Um, a, lot, a lot of stuff. So I'm not surprised. Yeah, it, it's just... I, I just think the total lack of change to it is what ultimately made it. I mean, it was a huge hit as a movie. Like it, it's it was viewed by every kid I know. But um, I, I feel as a work of writing, it fails hard. Well, uh, speaking of endings, we do have the opportunity to change our own when it comes to this episode. So I feel like let's end off on a bang with some. Great weekly recommendations, completely arbitrary as to what they might be. So you're going to get a nice mixed bag of goodness. But before we do that, we have some protocol. Sure. So you can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook under the K-Cut. And so this month we've got Freddy Got Fingered, The Color of Pomegranates, The Graduate, and Shell in Soccer. For our cinematic smorgasbord if you want to follow along at home. Uh, four films that could not be further from each other. Like, at all. <laughs> at all. I've had people messaging me being like, what is this list? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, my God. Okay, so uh, same order? Sure. Okay, what is your weekly recommendation? Uh, so I decided to just go with something totally random. Uh, Jorgis Lanthimos, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Ooh. Because I sometimes like watching movies that give me anxiety the entire time. Uh, shout out to a, a, a Greek legend right there. Yorgos Lanthimos is one of my favorite contemporary filmmakers. I'm still waiting on his uh, the favorite follow-up, so please get on that. Um, I'm going to go with Akira Kurosawa's High and Low. Um, I just went on a trip to Vancouver, and I, I visited... Uh, 
a lovely shop, uh, which had all sorts of like Criterion films. And I went on a bit of a massive haul, so uh, that's one that I picked up. I adore this film in terms of uh, Kurosawa's non-samurai films. It's up there, and the fact that it's developing a contemporary legacy, one before it was rarely talked about, is, you know, it's, there's no mystery as to why. It's a brilliant film, an obvious influence on Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. I think, um, if you haven't seen High and Low, it is a fantastic noir thriller which i cannot recommend more than that and like a lot of films that we've discussed today the less you know the better so go in blindly you won't you won't regret it okay yeah i'm going to recommend the farewell because i think that is a movie with a perfect ending but it is in a very specific way and you cannot be spoiled for it even a little so i would suggest you all go and watch the farewell which i would say anyway but great ending i highly recommend excellently performance by aquafina I'm so happy you brought that up. I feel like The Farewell is a brilliant film, which um, unfortunately does not get talked about anymore. And it should be. And Aquafina was not nominated, which is shocking. She got really close, I think. But yeah, I wish. Just shocking. Anyway, so that was the K-Cut. And we're going to wrap it up here. And let us know if we uh, if we ended well. And if not, what you would change. And if, if you have recommendations, please be kind. That was the K-Cut. We are not going to the L-Cut. <laughs>